0: the media makes a big mistake when they talk about this as an invasion of Ukraine. The invasion has already happened.
1: It is the week of December 13th and welcome to episode 110 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Matthew Ferraro, a counsel at international law firm Wilmer Cutler Pickering Hale and Dorr, Sarah Stewart, executive director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator. Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Monson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Last week, President Biden called Vladimir Putin and told him, basically, if Russia invades Ukraine, Russia will be the subject of the mother of all economic sanctions. Jake Sullivan, uh, President Biden's national security advisor, said the president was prepared to do things necessary now, quote, that we weren't prepared to do in 2014, unquote, which was the last time Russia invaded Ukraine. Sarah, do you think economic sanctions, even really tough ones, will be enough to deter Vladimir Putin from moving into Ukraine?
2: Well, thanks, Les. And I'm not, you know, the the Russia-Ukraine expert, but I've spoken to a few experts on the topic, and I think that we need to look at history to see what's going to work in this instance. So, you know, just to set the table, the U.S. currently maintains sanctions on Russia related to its 2014 invasion of Ukraine, among various other things like cyber activities and influence operations, human rights abuses, illicit trade with North Korea, et cetera. Um, These have been pretty widespread. I have seen at least one uh, economist estimating that Since 2014, U.S. and other Western sanctions have impacted about 100 billion dollars of of Russian corporations. So it's it's not a small it's not a small amount. Um, And I think that there's various schools of thought on whether or not these sanctions have worked. Coming in again, not as necessarily an expert, but I'm looking at this subjectively, and I'm trying to ask myself if we had this many sanctions already, and we're still. Now, facing a similar situation that these sanctions were intended to prevent before, have they worked? Will more sanctions actually work in this in this instance? And I think that you know we've got to really ask ourselves if this is going to move the needle. I think we also need to think about what's at stake here. Um, if Putin believes that he's losing his grip on Ukraine to the west, that's an existential threat in his view. And so are sanctions alone, the right tool, Are sanctions at all, the right tool. I think a complicating factor that we have here too is that the U.S. is a trading partner with Russia, but it's quite small when compared to the EU. And the EU is heavily reliant on Russian exports of natural gas. If the U.S. were going to adopt a tougher sanctions regime, is it enough for the U.S. to do that on its own? Does it need to bring the EU into the fold? Will the EU come to the party because they're in an energy crisis? Is this really the time when they want to be cutting off that spigot?
1: All right, Jamil, if uh, indeed uh, unilateral economic sanctions are not going to move the needle here, uh, how else should the president be framing this? One of the things uh, that came out from the White House in the last few days is that the US is not considering a military option. The White House said basically, US troops are not going to be moving into Ukraine to defend Ukraine. Should the president and his people have said that, or should we have left that option, at least hypothetically, on the table? Well, look, I think it was I think it's long been
3: clear um, uh, that the U.S. was not going to put its troops on the front lines of this uh, Ukrainian-Russian conflict. Um, uh, To the extent that NATO might do that, I think that's also unlikely. Um, I think what everyone understood was that whatever the president said he might do, that the bulk of any 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 effort would be economic. But for all the reasons Uh, that was just laid out, right? I think, um, you know, the chances of this happening are very, or have, or being effective are, are very, are very low, right? And so the real problem is, is if Putin doesn't really fear, uh, what we're doing, as Sarah laid out, right? What, what, what impact is going to have? The real thing that could make a measurable difference, short of U.S. or NATO troops on the ground, uh, going in would be the provision of more military capabilities to Ukraine now. Of course, the problem, is the president said, we'll impose economic sanctions after an invasion. We'll provide more military support to Ukraine after an invasion. We'll fortify NATO after an invasion. Well, guess what? It is too late at that point to be to be providing Ukraine with that capability, to be fortifying NATO. The time to do that is now. And yes, we've provided some uh, military equipment. President Trump did it first. Uh, president Biden has, has increased that effort. But it's not enough. We need anti-tank weaponry, anti-ship weaponry, anti-aircraft weaponry. And, and we need to be able to train the Ukrainians on how to use it ahead of time. So that imposes a very real cost on the Russians and and may, if anything has a chance of, ad- of adjusting their calculus, that would be it, if, or if we're not short of putting U.S. troops on the line, which clearly the president has
1: taken off the table. So Matthew, uh, we're, we're examining the, the weakness in the economic sanctions argument here, at least as far as unilateral sanctions go. Uh, we've pointed out that The military uh, side of this question is not necessarily going to be pursued by the Biden administration. So, your thoughts on this? And should President Biden even have done this call at all if the big threat is something that isn't really going to deter Vladimir Putin from doing what he seems to be threatening to do? Was this a wise move at all? Uh,
0: Thanks, Les. It's a great pleasure, of course, to be with you and Sarah and Jamil. So I I do think that President Biden is correct to engage with President Putin on these issues. By doing so, I don't think that President Biden surrenders any high ground or gives Putin more than what he wants. If anything, I think it's an opportunity for President Biden Biden to stress the severity of the blowback that Moscow, Putin and his apparatchiks could face if they further invade Ukraine. And let me just pause on this. I was really happy to hear Sarah describe it as a previous invasion. I think the media makes a big mistake when they talk about this as an invasion of Ukraine. The invasion has already happened when they seized Crimea and the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. According to the Atlantic Council, now seven percent of Ukrainian territory is controlled by Russia. So this is about further invasions. And I do think I guess this is where I depart from the wisdom of the crowd here, that the economic and other sanctions against Russia could well be severe including targeted sanctions against Putin and his circle, and even cutting off Russia from the global financial settlement system, which of course is swift. I'd also point out that we have given uh, anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. These are called javelins. We've delivered at least several dozen, and those are significant. I do think that Ukraine, the Ukrainian military, is much stronger today than it was in 2014. So I, I don't really buy the argument that there's like nothing that's been done. I think that I do think that more should be provided to them, but I don't think that it's just a matter of dollars and cents. I I, I do think that this is a – one of the things that's happened is that unlike in 2014 when it was little green men crossing the border, Russia has been acting very much in the open, which has allowed Ukraine uh, to step up its game militarily. And also, the, uh, Putin is now threatening parts of Russia that are not as aligned with Russia as – a bigger part, parts of Ukraine that are not as aligned with Russia as – uh, as they were before, where there was a, a large you know, Russian population in Crimea, in the Donbas. I do think it's also important, if I could, to pause a bit on Putin's motivations. And Sarah mentioned a little bit of this. My view is that Vladimir Putin is a sociopath, but he's not irrational. So far, he's seen more benefit than cost to his saber-rattling and his military ventures. I think he has a mix of motives now. Uh, he has said openly that he believes that Ukraine is a part of Russia, but I do think his primary motivation today is domestic. Uh, In short, his popularity has fallen like a rock in the past year within Russia. Uh, COVID has exacted a terrible toll on the Russian people. One estimate of excess mortality says that 800,000 people have died since the start of COVID, whereas their official report is less than 300,000. At the same time, Russian disposable income has declined by more than 10 percent, from 2014 to 2020. Just imagine if that happened here, if that kind of decline happened in people's disposable income. So Putin may try to salvage his political standing at home with military adventure abroad. This is a well-worn authoritarian tactic. But if the West holds firm and makes it clear that the cost would exceed the benefits, I think he will relent.
1: So let's, Matthew, let's, uh, you brought up Putin's motivations here, Sarah, you address them a little bit. Let's let's talk about that a little more in depth. And I want to hear from, from each of you on this. The, it's been couched by Vladimir Putin as uh, Ukraine getting into NATO is somehow a threat to Russia. Now, NATO has never invaded Russia. Uh, NATO is never going to invade Russia. That seems like a, a straw man here. Is in fact, what Vladimir Putin really worried about, the fact that In Ukraine, which is a country very much on the border of Russia, they are very closely related. Uh, The people share language, uh, alphabet, religion, culture. There's no doubt about any of that. If Ukraine is a thriving democratic market economy, the real threat to Putin is exactly that, that the Russian people themselves could also enjoy the benefits of democracy and a market economy, which they don't currently enjoy. So what is the motivation of Vladimir Putin here? The next election in Russia is not till 2024. Why is he stoking a crisis now? Jamil, I'm looking to you.
3: Well, I think, I think Matthew actually lays out a really credible reason why Vladimir Putin is stoking a crisis now, right? Which is that he's got problems at home. Uh, you know, we've seen, this, we've seen this show before, right? I mean, uh, Vladimir Putin was at, was at record low levels of popularity when he uh, invaded Ukraine the first time, when he took Crimea. Um, and so it's no surprise uh, that he's he's making these noises once again uh, at this time. Um, look, NATO, Ukraine's been in partnership for peace with NATO since the late '90s. I mean, this idea somehow that there's some new thing going on in Ukraine. Or there's new there's new uh, weapons in Ukraine, NATO weapons, and that's why Vladimir Putin's reacting. The NATO weapons are in Ukraine. Because you invaded Crimea last time and we're helping the defend against your current buildup of troops right now. You cannot possibly blame you know, American weapons for coming in when you're the cause of the weapons coming in. Uh, and yet Vladimir Putin's going to do that. And he keeps saying that out there. And everyone's sort of like, oh, well, yeah, you know, maybe we should be a little more careful. No, the problem is Vladimir Putin and his expansionist effort. He wants to reestablish the old Soviet Union. That's where he comes from, that's his background. He may not want all the baggage that comes to the Soviet Union. But he wants his fears and influence and thinks, hey, Ukraine's mine. You got to stay out. And the reality is Ukraine is not Russia's. It is not part of the Soviet Union. It is not part of the Commonwealth of Independent States. In fact, to the contrary, the Soviet Soviet Russian government signed an agreement when, when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons right the budapest agreement budapest memorandum which made clear that russia along with the other nations including the united states guaranteed ukraine's territorial sovereignty well you know who violated that right it's vladimir putin and russia and they continue to violate it today and they're threatening to do it again and here we are just saying well you know i mean it'll you know it's not our fight so we'll we'll kind of watch it happen. we might throw in some economic sanctions and by the way, I, I want to make a point that Sarah made that I want to really underline, which is this idea that we will stand up to Vladimir Putin by, by barring Nord Stream 2 from being turned on is a joke, right? And it's a joke for the following reason. The reason why Nord Stream 2 is so important and so powerful, just like Nord Stream 1 before it, is because we never built an alternative pipeline path that we've been talking about for a decade. We didn't provide them liquid natural gas for the United States, which we could have, right? And, and wean them off of addiction to Russian natural gas, and Russian heating oil, and yet now today they're our addic- friends in Europe are addicted to it. And so, yes, while maybe for a while Germany might say no, the reality is, and Vladimir Putin knows this, they need it just as much as Russia needs it, and it's only a matter of time. And so it's a hollow threat. Um, it may be a temporarily uh, a measure we might put in place, but the reality in the long run is it's not going to be successful because we haven't done what it takes to make Europe energy independent when it comes to Moscow.
2: I think, you know, I think we see this a lot, and, and this isn't just unique to the the situation with Putin and Russia. I mean, whether NATO is just kind of a smokescreen for, you know, brought <clears throat> his, you know, broader thinking on the topic, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because at the end of the day, um, he does he does feel like he's losing his grip. Um, and his perception is that he's got to rein it back in. And so how we respond to that, whether it's, you know, whether we say this is about NATO expansion or not, doesn't really matter. I mean, I guess one of the questions that I have, and I'll throw this back out to to the group, is if he doesn't feel like he has that much to lose, or at least he thinks that, you know, the U.S. and, and allies aren't going to put their money where their mouth is, then Isn't that really dangerous for us to be, you know, supplying uh, additional military weapons to Ukraine, though? Like, will he just double down? And then what do we do? I mean, we don't we've said the the president has said he's not going to go in militarily. But what happens if we try to call the bluff? What happens if we send more tanks and, and other things? And then he escalates. Then how, how do we leave it? So, I mean, I think that's just another question to grapple with here. And it really comes down to, you know, what are the intentions? We're trying to diffuse the situation. He's, he's ready and willing to amp it up, maybe.
0: I, I guess my, my view um, is that our deterrent is much stronger than I think the, the consensus here would allow. And I think it is important not to build up pressure to greater than it is. I mean, it is a middle-term country with a lot of negative indicators that I've discussed before, declining population, weakening economy. I mean, the Russian state is all guns and no butter. To put this in perspective, its economy is smaller than Canada's, and Canada has one third of as many people. So it is just just a weak state. Um, I do think that we can decide, to Jamil's point, what to supply Ukraine. I I think we have, we've amped it up in the past seven years. I think we do it further. I think that would be another way of deterring uh, Russia even more that would not require US boots on the ground or anything like that. Uh, I do think that taking Russia out of the SWIFT system would have an extraordinary impact on the, gov- on the country and on the economy. I think that is a real threat. I think this is a little less noted, but Japan joined in the European statement of extraordinary sanctions, which I think is an important state- statement is, uh, of just like all the leading economies minus China on uh against russia so i think all of that is important to me this is like a prime opportunity to exercise a little diplomatic creativity because i think we could find some way for Moscow to save some minimal amount of face like for instance saying that we're going to continue to study ukraine's membership into nato for another couple years so like that kind of gives putin something and then the 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 temper is cool but the, the thought is like invading further invading Ukraine is somehow going to be easy for Putin and not actually make his position worse vis-a-vis his population, especially if they start using a lot of the weaponry that they've not been provided, I, I think is a little faulty. So I, I do think that this is actually, it, it's a parlous time, but the U.S. and its Western and now Eastern allies are in a better position than I think some of y'all would recognize
1: Matthew, I want to expand a little bit on, on, on your pointing out, and Sarah did also, that Russia is really not the threat it seems to be. And, and I'm thinking back ten years ago, Ukraine was essentially a vassal state to Russia, right? He had a, a very pro-Moscow regime in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin uh, could do what he wanted, do what he wanted with the the little brother of Ukraine. Now. Yes, he's occupying 10% of Ukraine's territory or or nearabouts, but Ukraine does what it wants. It says it wants to move towards NATO. It wants to move towards the EU. It's embraced democracy. Uh, It's got some corruption issues, but it's embracing market economies. And it is this. It is a problem for Vladimir Putin in a way that it wasn't 10 years ago. This idea that he's some sort of genius who can use, play his cards to maximum effect, it's really not true, is it? I agree with you, Les. Well, well, but that's but that's exactly the point. That's exactly why we have to
3: stand up, and 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 why I'd sort of say in response to Sarah's point: Who cares if he thinks his his grip is losing? It is. It should. That's exactly the point. If his grip is losing and he's upset about it, great. Double down. Now we're not. We've already told him we're not putting troops in. So the only question is not whether Vladimir Putin is going to invade or not. The question is what price is he going to pay if he does invade? We are not going to be able to stop him from invading. If he chooses to, we're we'll probably not be able to succeed from even stopping him from winning if he chooses to without putting troops on the ground. And we're not gonna do that. So now the question is at what cost? And does that hurt him back at home? And I think that's the point is we've got to change his calculus. We've taken certain tools off the table, the most the most extensive tools possible, right? An actual military force to front to confront him force to force. We're not doing that. Given that we're not doing that, the next best thing, yes, I don't I don't disagree that Swift will matter, right? you know, Nord Stream 2 staving it off for a while will matter. But the thing that will really matter is for the Russian people to see Russian soldiers dying on the Ukrainian front at a time when they didn't have to go in, we can make that happen by supplying Ukrainians with with more weapons and great a couple of dozen or whatever, a handful of javelins. They need more javelins. They need stingers. They need integrated air defense systems. They need anti-ship weaponry. And they need U.S. training to use that.
1: I'm not saying military advisors necessarily but trainers for sure. Matthew, sir, I want to push you guys a little bit on the on Jamil's hawkishness here. Uh, he, he wants to uh, send them everything in the U.S. arsenal. What if instead of uh, arming the Ukrainians to the teeth, or perhaps as an alternative, the U.S. looked at, with its NATO allies, enhancing the presence of NATO troops in places like Poland and the Baltic states, where, yes, there are not uh, bases for NATO, but there are plenty of NATO personnel coming through on a, te- on a so-called temporary basis, sometimes for 18 months or more, which seems a lot like a normal deployment. What if we enhance those rotations, sent more NATO troops into these frontline states as a message to Vladimir Putin without directly implicating the Russia-Ukraine relationship?
0: I think that's a, a fabulous idea. And actually what I would suggest doing is like a tour, you know, kind of like um uh, a, a tour of, of great ships in Asia back in the day. This would be you, you you and it could it could be we could arrive with COVID vaccines and uh an M one Abrams A M one A one Abrams tanks and personnel carriers and make it a goodwill tour, basically show that America is back, so to speak, uh and, and yeah, run from Estonia, a lot Lithuania, basically anyone that will take us. And it doesn't have to be more than that. It can basically just be a goodwill tour um, to show that we've got and show off some really nifty hardware. And we've got some great looking soldiers, uh, sailors, airmen, Marines, and just have them there, I think would be a wonderful way to send a message that we are present in Europe, that we care about the future of Europe, that we think, um, even though this is going to be the Asian century, that it is an Asian century that we will confront uh, arm in arm with our European brother.
1: Sarah.
2: I think that sounds like a good idea. I mean, I'll I'll just try to be per, a little bit provocative here for the sake of this conversation. I mean, I think that, you know, what's at stake here um, is a lot. I, and I take Jamil's point that, you know, seeing, seeing a battle is going to help be leveraged to get Putin to back down because his people will rise up against him. But what if they don't? Or what if that's not enough? I mean, these are real lives that we have at stake. I think, you know, there is um, there is some real merit to thinking about whether it's a Goodwill tour or some other diplomatic way of trying to diffuse the situation. Because if we amp it up, we are not dealing with a leader that has the same, you know, level of moderation that we might have and is willing to take actions that you know we're not willing to take so I think we got to be I think we've got to be really careful about next steps here we want to protect the Ukraine people we want to support them but how we go about it is really truly you know could be a matter of life and death and I'm not saying that I have all the answers one, you know, a diplomatic path forward may not be the best path for the Ukrainian people. But I think it's something that we have to very, very seriously consider before we consider anything else that's going to up the escalation.
1: Jamil, I'll give you last word here, because I know you're going to be reluctant to speak on the next topic.
3: Look, I mean, I mean, you know, we've seen this show before, right? We're a, we're a weak economic, uh, economically positioned nation uh, armed to the teeth, goes and threatens other nations. Right. And then we say, well, you know, it won't really matter so much if he goes into Austria. It won't matter so much if he goes into Poland as long as he splits it with the Soviet Union. Well, you know, and then, yeah, you know, we'll make our, we'll make our state. We'll do, we'll, we'll put all of our troops in Belgium and Holland. Then we'll hold that place and that'll play out really well for us. Oh, wait, that didn't work that well either. I just think that it is a mistake uh, to allow um, somebody who has, uh, or a nation that's committed to the territorial sovereignty of another nation, uh, to simply, uh, uh, you know, invade it with no penalties, which is essentially what happened in, in the case of Crimea, um, and let it happen again and again and again. Um, you have to exact a cost, and if you're not willing to put your troops on the line to confront them, then you've got to exact a cost in a different way. And this fear of escalation, I mean, this is this is the same problem that we have around the globe. Everyone thinks we're afraid of getting into a conflict or putting our money or treasure on the line, lo- our treasure or our lives on the line, and they're right. It's, and that's exactly why China is watching exactly what happens here in Ukraine. I agree that Ukraine matters a whole lot less to American national security than Taiwan, but I promise you the Chinese are watching to see what we do and see if we have the conviction of our words, right, and whether we stand by Ukraine here, and that will allow them to assess whether we will stand by Taiwan. Now, they may assess it wrong. But these things have consequences, and simply allowing Vladimir Putin to do what he did in Crimea, that had its own spillover effect, just like the Syria red line, our failure to enforce it, allowed, allowed Crimea to happen, allowed the islands to be built in the South China Sea. These things have spillover effects, and I think we, we avoid standing by Ukraine at our peril. We've already made clear we're not putting our troops on the line. we got to do everything short of that. If that means giving them everything in our arsenal, so what? And, and as, if, as if the Ukrainians are not going to be harmed if and when Russia invades. They're going to get killed. The question is whether more or less will be killed if they have our weaponry. I promise you it'll be less.
1: I'm just going to cite uh, an example from uh, the history of the Vikings uh, on, on the appeasement question. There is, there is a nostrum in current national security thinking that you don't pay the Danegeld. In other words, you don't bribe the Vikings not to invade your kingdom in Europe as the great Ethelred the Unready of England did. He was one of the first kings of England, Ethelred the Unready. All right, I've been reading up on my Viking history, and people criticized him for paying the Dane Guild, for paying ransom to the Viking raiders who would take the money and then kind of hold off on a raid for about six months and maybe go invade somewhere else. But here's the point. It may have been a bad idea in the moment, but at the end of the day, uh, the United Kingdom is still there and the Vikings are no more. Scandinavia has stopped invading because it was not sustainable. There are times when you need to kind of bob and weave a little bit and hold off the aggressor because their efforts are not sustainable. So I'm just going to throw that out there. OK, Neville. as, Chamberlain. as my as well, Neville Chamberlain's a, a terrible example, but the Dane Guild actually might be a decent example there. You have to use judgment. You can't just say every single time that bobbing and weaving is wrong. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. If the Russians aren't going to be a threat in 10 years or 20 years or in a generation because they're killing themselves, which is basically what's happening in Russia, uh, maybe it's OK to kind of hold them off a little bit and not confront them militarily every single time, Mr. Jaffer. I'm going I'm to buy you an umbrella. All right, let's let's uh, let's flex to our next topic. Jamil doesn't like talking about this one very much. This is uh, the Iran nuclear deal negotiations, which appear to be dead in the water in Vienna. The word is Iran is dragging its feet in these talks to revive the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action from its heyday back in 2015 and 2016 European negotiators are alarmed that Iran is attempting too radical of a rewrite of the agreement and the negotiations may fail the Biden plan as stated to extend the deadlines of the old deal by 10 years in the new deal doesn't look like that's going to happen Matthew are you worried that based on this that the ball is in the iranians court in other words it's kind of their call whether or not these negotiations proceed. They've positioned themselves such that if they give a little bit, suddenly the Europeans and the Americans and the Chinese and the Russians, and we're going to get to that in a second, uh, will be willing to sit and engage with them, perhaps more likely to be on their terms rather than the West terms. What do you? What's your assessment?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure that we want the agreement more than they do. I think the sanctions do hurt the Iranian economy. Way back when I was in government, I worked on the Iran target uh, when the sanctions were stepping up, and they took a, a, a real toll. Um, and I think they want to get out from under those sanctions. So I, I think that if it plays myself in Iran's shoes. I think that they believe the further progress that they make on enrichment today, the better position that they'll be in when they, when they do sit down for a negotiated settlement. So that's basically they're racing against the clock. Incidentally, I see something similar happening in China with their uh, development of of arms as well, nuclear arms as well. I think they also know that arms limitation agreements are coming and they wanna build up as much as they can before they start to negotiate. I just think this this tends to be what happens. But no, I mean, I think that they have very good reasons to seek a deal. I think we have reasons to seek a deal. I think we also have reasons to wait for a deal that's particularly uh, uh, favorable to our terms. So, I mean, I think we would like a deal. Uh, Certainly, if we could, Work with our European allies, that would give it the greatest chance of success. But at the same time, it's like, you know, the, their program has been degraded through sabotage. Um, it's not so easy to enrich. So I, I don't see that they are so much better off than we are as the negotiations proceed.
1: Matthew, let me push you a little bit and uh, and ask you about this Biden idea that we're going to extend the deadlines by 10 years. Some of those deadlines are coming up in about three years, particularly on centrifuge research and some of the advanced technology components of their nuclear program. Amazingly, those deadlines were only eight years or eight and a half years, which means they're, they're up in 2024, which is basically right around the corner. So Who's who's in the real squeeze here? Once this, once this deal ends, it's kind of carte blanche for the Iranians, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think that
0: you put your finger on what was the weakest part of the JCPOA, which is that the deadlines were just too short. I mean, I think that it was a good it was generally speaking a good deal on, on the substance. They just needed to have longer deadlines. And I I can see from the video that Jamil disagrees, but I you know, I think that um we are where we are. I think it would have been better if we'd stay in the deal and tried to negotiate a longer deadline. But uh, in terms of, I think it is important to think about what it is that the Iranians want. I mean, my view has often been that the Iranians seek what's called breakout capacity. So that's the ability to build a nuke if they want to, but not the actual nuke. And the reason why is, well, it's complicated, but one reason is that if they were to build one, it would set off an arms race in the region. Right now, Saudi Arabia doesn't have a nuclear weapon itself, but Saudi is the Saudis essentially bankrolled the AQ Khan program in Pakistan. It's called the Sunni bomb. And so the idea is that they would go and basically just buy a bomb from Pakistan and then have one in, uh, in, uh, in Saudi. So, you know, they would it would basically make a, a dangerous neighborhood all that much worse. So uh, so to your, question, what was your question, your question was like, what's going to happen in 2024? Well, I think the concern is that they'll get ever so closer to this breakout capacity. At the same time, this is sort of like a double-edged sword the Israelis are going to get more and more nervous and are already doing um, their deeds to try to slow and sabotage their program. And they might be triggered, one might say, to take even stronger action, which I think would be bad for the Iranians. I think as it is right now, given uh, um, certain actions that have led to the deaths of Iranian scientists, a lot of Iranian policymakers live in, uh, live with the concerns that, something like that might befall them. So, yeah, it's a tricky situation, but again, I'm not so sure that we are we want this more than they do or that we're in a worse position than they are. I think honestly they're in the much they're in the much worse spot. Their economy is weak, they're under tremendous sanctions and like I said, they both fear not having a nuclear po- program and then also advancing one such that they compel compensatory action from Israel or elsewhere.
1: Jamil, I am curious. I want to get you out of your um your normally shy position on this issue, do you do you agree with Matthew that Iran is actually in a tough spot? And if and if that's true, don't we all owe a big thanks to President Donald Trump for pulling the U.S. out of the JCPOA, even though Iran was complying with it at the time? Yeah, look, I mean, I think Iran
3: is in a tougher position uh, than they were prior to the Trump administration's reestablishment of maximum pressure. Um, but they're in a they're in a more more beneficial position than they were at the time the Biden administration began. And why is that? Because the Biden administration unilaterally relieved a set of the maximum pressure sanctions that the Trump administration reimposed, in part to get Iran back to the table, in part to show good faith, whatever the reasons were. The reality is that effort has failed, and they ought to reimpose those sanctions, return to maximum pressure, and really raise the leverage um, against Iran if they're going to get to a good deal. The reason why the Iranians think they can get away with more enrichment, and get away with uh, with sort of trying to rewrite the whole deal is because they don't feel as much pressure as they did under the trump administration um and so yeah i do think president trump gets credit for uh raising the pressure on iran i like matthew's idea of we should renegotiate the deal and extend the deadlines while we were made the deal i don't know how that was going to work given that we had no leverage on iran at the time right that we would have you know it's kind of like the way that the 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 obama administration negotiated the first deal which was We wanted it so badly, and it was clear to them that at every turn, the Iranians negotiated more and more and more against us, and we kept giving and giving and giving and giving. It's no way to run a negotiation, just like it's no way to run a negotiation when you've given up all your leverage to think you're going to get a better deal, right? The reality is you've got to reestablish your leverage. That's what President Trump did. You can agree or disagree with President Trump on other matters of national security policy. This was a good move. The Biden administration wasted the leverage they were given. By being too eager to get back in the deal, by relieving sanctions way too early. And here we are, shockingly, no deal. And off we go to the races. I agree with Matthew, though. The Iranians are facing challenges. We can up that ante on them. We ought up that ante on them. President Obama, you know, you ref- fought back against congressional efforts to increase sanctions on Iran. The last time around, those sanctions were successful and brought Iran to the table. We should do the same again. It'll work.
1: Sarah, what do you think here? Should the U.S. uh, and perhaps some of our allies reimpose sanctions on Iran while these negotiations are a little bit stalled right now?
2: Look, I think that both Matthew and Jamil have hit on the absolute crux of the matter, which is leverage. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about Iran sanctions, or if we're talking about Ukraine or trade or some other issue, the only way to get what you want is to establish leverage. And right now, I think that you've got a situation where, on the one hand, the Iranians have definitely, you know, had some, some negative impacts from the, the sanctions. Some of that got rolled back under, under Biden. Um, and, and you know, and, and maybe that's enough to make them want to re-engage. Um, but at the same time, this is a classic US play where we make our intentions so well known about what we want. And now Iran knows that they've got us where they want us. They know that we need this deal so desperately, and that gives them the ultimate leverage. Who wants it more? And you know, there, there's a limit to how far they're going to be able to go here, but we've got to reestablish leverage. Are sanctions the way to go? I don't know. I'm skeptical. We had max pressure before it didn't work. So if we put more max pressure on is that enough? Um, I think that you know one of the ways one of the other ways to show to show pressure is to have the US and the EU working in better lockstep. It doesn't help if we're having all sorts of disagreements you know on this on the margins. We need to be, Working and being aligned so that Iran's feeling more isolated and that that will also help to build the pressure. There's not a great option here. <laughs> I mean, the, the deal was imperfect. Um, pulling out of the deal was imperfect. Sanctions are imperfect. This is not a great situation. But one thing is true. And it's if we don't reestablish some leverage, it's going to be very difficult to, to get what we want out of it. Hopefully we can do it in, you know as expeditiously <laughs> as possible, though.
0: I would just say, I, I really am not convinced that we're so desperate for the deal, that, that, we, that we're more desperate than the Iranians. Just one piece of news that's in the paper today, Neftali Bennett, the Prime Minister of Israel, is in the UAE. He's the first, you know, he's the first Prime Minister of Israel to ever visit the UAE. Um, I, I think... Which, which, to be clear, an Israeli Gulf state alliance is bad news for Iran. To sort of spell it out clearly, so I mean, like, I think the Iranians might be the dog that catches the car with this. I mean, like, you know, do they do they really want to be seen as threatening the entire region by lots of, of powerful states that have the money and technology and military might to actually make real trouble for them? I'm not so sure. So uh, uh, I would I would just agree with I, I would agree with Sarah. That um, it's a mix of bad options. Not everything has solutions. Right. That's sort of the, the cinema version of international relations. Um, but I will say that uh, the, I will just point this out. The, the, the deal uh, at when the deal was still in effect, Iran had so many centrifuges with the deal out of effect. Iran has so many centrifuges plus X and Y. So, I mean, it, it, when, they, when it entered a deal, it did so because it thought it was in it's, in its best interest as a nation and it respected that deal. And I think that is what we should look for. But if we can't come to agreement, then we don't and we use other means to contain Iran uh, until its own society weighs the
1: regime down. Matthew, one of, one of the reasons I agree with Jamil that the U.S. really wants this is some of the other actions we're seeing in the region. The U.S. is slowing down approval of weapons transfers to Israel because Israel is totally against the deal. On the other hand, the Biden administration is approving now defensive weapons for Saudi Arabia, uh, where before had been very reluctant to do so. In part, I I have to speculate because the Saudis, at least in public, are saying good things about JCPOA renewal. So so let's let's go to the exit question on this topic because. We have been known to go on and on and on on the Iran nuclear deal on this podcast in the past we 're not going to do that now uh, but here's here 's the exit question the The way for the u s to get leverage on Iran is to unite the other actors around the table that means the three european countries germany france the u k it also means China and russia so One of the things that President Biden is talking to President Putin about is the Iran nuclear deal. He's also talking to President Xi Jinping in China about it. But let's talk about Putin for a second. Are are we imagining that as part of that conversation that Putin isn't trying to use the Iran nuclear talks as a way to get a little even more leverage in terms of his threats against Ukraine and trying to get uh, Biden and the West to back down a little bit? Is it possible those two issues are linked and not in a good way for us? Jamil. Yeah,
3: look, I think it's certainly, uh, I think certainly Vladimir Putin is using uh, whatever leverage he can uh, with respect to the U.S. and, and saying all the right things uh, if he'll get what he wants. Um, but look, I, I think that we have to recognize that uh, while the Russians and um, and Chinese play a role in this, right? We control the lines, share the play here, right? We negotiated the original JCPOA, and brought it to the rest of the P5 plus one, right? We're doing the same thing again here. If we have the willingness to stand by our convictions. We will drag the Europeans, who are always reticent about doing anything ever at all that's at all aggressive, um, along with us because they have no choice, Even, and not only China and Russia. If you want to be part of the U.S. banking system, you either work with us or you work with the Iranians. we put people to the test before, by the way, in congressionally imposed sanctions that President Obama opposed repeatedly and repeatedly and threatened to veto until we until he saw overwhelming congressional support and then said, oh, he had worked with Congress to get those in place. Okay, right. We'll see. But the reality is is that if we can simply pressurize our colleagues in Europe and the Russians and the Chinese to come alongside us, I think we're able to be more successful here. The question is, do we have the conviction of our our views? And I hope Matthew's right. I hope we don't want it uh, or need it as much as they do uh president biden once again is looking desperately uh for a foreign policy win after his precipitous withdrawal from afghanistan uh, and his failure is what looks like a likely failure to get bill back better done at home um he does have the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, which he which he will get credit for um but he's looking for a foreign foreign policy victory you know it looks like ukraine may fall to the russians so and you know china doesn't like we're having a lot of success against china so this might be the thing he looks for as as president obama did and uh one-one hopes that we not we don't give away a form in doing so.
1: Sarah or
0: Matthew? I was just gonna say that that uh, again I kind of repeat myself. I I do think that um we want a deal. We don't necessarily want it more than the Iranians. I mean, to that's your, to your point, week. Yeah, sure, we, we're, we're putting a little pressure on our friends because we want them uh to give a little so that we can negotiate, but that to me doesn't mean um that it's a, a, our above all uh goal, above all other considerations. Um I do think. I think we're being too bearish on America. Like, you know, like we're doing great, right? Like our GDP growth rate is very strong. You know, our GDP is at what, $21 trillion. We're, you know, an NDAA is going to be passed soon. It's going to put $800 billion into the military. And for all of, you know, all of the concerns that we've had and the rough so many years that we've we've had both at home and abroad, I just think that we're, we're in a much better shape, far better than any peer competitor. Uh, and that means that we can deal with lots of different spinning plates at the same time, including Iran and Russia and China. And I think uh, I know this podcast is dedicated to finding the divisions uh, in foreign policy thinking. But I think this is something that we could all take great pride in, which is that we are uh, we are re- really rowing in the right uh, right direction as a country. Um, and maybe we just disagree
1: a little bit on the ports of call. But so anyway, America okay. has been made great again, Matthew. In a, in a manner of speaking. Yes, Sarah
2: last last point and you know i think whether it's whether it's the jcpoa some other version of the jcpoa or not i think that the us does clearly want to stop Iran from being able to have nuclear weapons. Right. And Iran knows that. And that's where I think that there's that's where I really think that there's that there's leverage, whether it comes in the form of of a deal or not. And, you know, I think that we're right. At, At the moment, we as a government, we classify Iran as an adversary. And so, you know, having them get access to these weapons is is something that we want to stop um, so I would just, you know, clarify my my remarks to, to that extent. And as for China and Russia to help on it, I, I feel very skeptical there.
1: <laughs> All right, well, uh, we'll close this topic with that. And we'll go to our final segment on the issue you are following that is not in the front page headlines. Matthew, I'll ask you to go first.
0: Uh, sure, Les. So last year, I mentioned the NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the major defense policy bill. Last year, it required the Department of Homeland Security to write a major report on deep fakes, which is highly believable synthetic media. That report is, is according to the bill, due to be released to Congress and the public by the end of this year. Uh, so I'm looking forward to reading that. It's going to be a, the, the government's first major write-up of threat of deep fakes, both to national security, but also business, civil rights, uh, all this, the whole suite of harms, and then also ways that we might be able to deal with them. And I expect reports like that to be predicates for interesting federal legislation to come.
3: Jamil. So I'm following the um, the uh, conviction of uh, Hong Kong media tycoon Jimmy Lai and others um, for engaging in protests uh, during the COVID lockdown um, in Hong Kong uh, to sell it to commemorate uh, the massacre uh, at Tiananmen Square. Um, uh, you see the the judge talking about the the decisions made about the protesters and questions of of COVID uh, uh, spreading and the like, but of course, what's really going on here is uh, Beijing's assertion once again of control over Hong Kong uh, and over the protests that have been taking place there over the last few years. Um, It's a troubling development um, and and one that I think we need to keep a close eye on uh, as we watch what China does both in Hong Kong uh, it, its continued violations of, of and, and, and dramatic abuses against human rights against human rights in the Xinjiang province uh, against the Uyghurs um, and and frankly its its uh, its oppression of religious and ethnic minorities across its entire uh, entire across the entire swath of, of China whether it's non Han Chinese or Christians or Buddhists or practitioners of Falun Gong these are all pieces of a larger problem with the Communist Chinese regime. Uh, that Americans need to wake up to, that we need to hold our own corporations accountable for. We heard about uh, the the now uh, the now decision by the Biden administration to engage in a diplomatic boycott of the Olympic Games. Uh, we'll see what impact that has. Uh, but I do think that um, this ultimately leaves it now in the hands of our athletes. Who don't deserve this burden, uh, but will have to take it on about what they do to protest. Uh, china's uh, bad behavior and will they refuse medals from chinese uh chinese officials like i know that um les you and i have talked about that i think that's the right thing to do but i think it's i do think it's unfair of us as a government to put that burden upon them if we're if we really think we need to be out of the games we should pull them and our and our diplomats out of the games and just be adults about it if we want to half-heartedly do it we're putting the pressure back on our own athletes. And so we're making it harder, not easier for them.
1: Sarah.
2: I'm following a really wonky new rule that the Chinese uh, put out in, I think October on food safety. And this is one of those things that really flies under the radar. But when I was working at USTR, we would follow these non-tariff barriers really closely So China imports $89 billion worth of food and beverages. And this rule sets up very, very complicated rules and requires foreign exporters to register and be approved before they can start exporting so there's a lot of um, concern that come January 1 when this goes into effect that there's going to be a lot of exports that are not able to actually enter and it's going to cause all sorts of you know other uh, trade irritants and so I think it's just another, you know, layering on that we need to be looking out for.
1: I am following, uh, kind of echoing what Jamil was talking about, a basketball player named Enes Cantor Freedom. Uh, he was Enes Cantor when he was a Turkish citizen. He became a U.S. citizen a few days ago and changed his last name to Freedom. He's an unapologetically patriotic American. He is a bench player for the Boston Celtics, and he has not been shy about criticizing Uh, The leaders of his uh, home country, Turkey, President Erdogan and others for their corruption and human rights abuses, he has now taken on the issue of human rights in China, he is calling out the Chinese government for any number of its sins, and he is also amazingly going after the stars of the NBA for being silent on this issue, the NBA makes a ton of money in China. Basketball is huge in that country, uh, and by and large, uh, the NBA has been unwilling to say anything critical of the of China, its government, and its policies. ines Kanter, freedom, all by himself, is changing that. He's doing it with joy and aplomb and charm, and uh, and he is to be applauded and supported. All right, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi@gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Ruth Zhou for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.